Please be aware that this episode contains some swearing and may not be suitable for younger people. Welcome to Box Tickers, the stories behind the stats. We're Sarah and Rachel from Art With Heart. Thanks for joining us. We started this podcast to mark the Equality Act turning 10. And because our equality work in schools had to be postponed due to the pandemic. One of the things we hear in the workshops a lot is, I shouldn't have to learn about this. And they're right. Because the world in 2020 should be a much safer place for all people. But it isn't. There are so many people still othered in society. This is our final episode, Othered. And whilst that is a term that could be applied to everyone who's been part of this podcast, today we'll be hearing from Minna on deafness, Caitlin on singledom, Mandla on the gender binary and Reese on race. First up, we have Minna. Hi, my name is Minna and I'm speaking through an interpreter because I'm deaf. That's the same for one in six of the UK population that will have some degree of deafness. That's a lot when you think about it. More than 11 million people here in the UK. Life has been very challenging for deaf people and most don't realise this because the world is easily accessible for them. For example, I have difficulties when going out to meet friends. I have to think about if there is sufficient lighting and what the seating arrangements are. When I go to the doctors, I need to consider communication. Can you do this easily? I can't. It's difficult. Possibly I need to use an interpreter or struggle to lip-read. People always say, oh, you can lip-read. But let me tell you, it's only possible up to about 30% of words. People think it's all right, easy to do. It really isn't. And now, through coronavirus outbreak, it's even worse than ever. The 30% has dropped to zero because of the use of face coverings. Have you thought about that? Similar issues present for deaf people, such as in the case of an emergency. Just phoning the emergency services, police, ambulance and fire are difficult. There are ways around it such as text, but they are much slower than the hearing accessible methods. Similarly, when you are out, you can hear the fire alarm. I can't, I rely on others, often by trying to interpret their behaviour, but that can leave me worried and anxious when I don't know what's happening. You know the government has been making important announcements. Well, deaf people have not been able to understand these because there have not been any interpreters present in England. Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales have all provided an interpreter, but not the English government. I really don't understand this. Deaf people need this important information, such as the recent outbreak of coronavirus. A good example is here in Manchester. Local restrictions have been brought in, but how are we supposed to know what they are if they are not presented in sign language? I just think it's much easier for hearing people. All of us. Deaf and hearing people have experienced changes because of the coronavirus. Social distancing and an increase of online presence using apps such as Zoom. This is hard for deaf people. There are some live transcription apps, but they often fail. Similarly, so do live TV subtitles, given the delay, gaps and failures in understanding the speaker's voice. Perhaps you thought deaf people had it easy. We are faced with so many barriers, and now it's worse. Even if in the future it goes back to how it was before, there is an issue because it has never been easy. Some people have said, well, face coverings, that's just one thing. 
there are lots of barriers and things we can't do. For example, the cinema. We can watch a film with a mask on, no issue. But we can't understand it. There are no subtitles. Perhaps there is a showing once a week and that's all. The Lives of Deaf People definitely is full of barriers. But you can help all of us deaf people. You can look for identifying badges or lanyards that inform you that we are deaf or need to lip read. You know the law permits you to remove your face covering if you meet a deaf person. Lots of people are concerned you are not allowed, but you are. Also remember that lip reading is hard. Perhaps you need to move closer. But you can think of other ways to communicate such as text or email. Also, you know what would be brilliant? If when you upload videos to social media sites like Facebook and Twitter, to add subtitles. YouTube offers an auto-generated subtitling option. Others possibly do too, just one of the ways you can include deaf people. I've also been thinking about easy signs to learn, but also gesture like, are you deaf? Do you need to lip read? Wait a moment. Or you can type on your phone and show the text. It will help. Really, I hope that coronavirus has raised the issues that deaf people face into awareness. But please, importantly, remember that when the pandemic is over, it doesn't mean that the issues for deaf people will also disappear with face masks. That's really just one thing. There are so many other struggles. So can you think of how you can adjust your behaviour now, but also generally going forward to meet the needs of deaf people? I really hope I've shed light on this for you. Thank you for watching. I think for a lot of people listening to that, that will have shed loads of light in terms of deaf awareness. And I think in Britain particularly, there is a real lack of deaf awareness. So in terms of the Equality Act, um, Equality Act 2010, deaf people would be protected under the disability protect, uh, protected characteristic. But many deaf people feel like actually their deafness is not a disability. And so the kind of separation of that is 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 really important, and the barriers are are different. I saw there's a um, uh, a campaigner and author called Paddy Ladd, um, who and I saw him do a talk, and he was saying that the one of the barriers that they've found with campaigning is just deafness is not in inverted commas the sexy cause like there seems to be a real wave of people getting behind causes and and deafness seems to just have been left behind so there's just not the same kind of attention and awareness that that there is around around deafhood around you know that's a phrase that Paddy uh Paddy Ladd talks about and has a book about uh deaf culture and and deafhood and that identity and the different it's not just about language it's it's a culture in its in its own right and it's so important that that is respected like we respect lots of other types of of culture i mean yeah the fact that one in six people in the uk have some degree of deafness that's a stat that i didn't know 11 million people that's not that's not a minority. That's a huge group of people, um, and like you say, you know, their their identity, um, their deafness is a really really important part of of who they are. But I, I think you know, I've I think the the pandemic has really brought up um, the need for more accessible information for deaf people. I've had conversations with members, with friends and members of my family who I've never never talked about that before, even though we've done a lot of work and collaborated a lot with 
um, deaf performers and, and talked a lot about it publicly. And I think, um, as, as Minna mentioned, I was horrified at the fact that there was no interpreter um, for the majority of the, the broadcast from the government in, in England. The fact that, you know, for Scotland, Ireland and Wales, that that is just, that is, you know, assumed, of course, they've got to be. This is public information. You know, they've been... But there's just this assumption of, like, well, you can read the captions. Oh, have you ever tried... You read the subtitles. Have you ever tried to like, watch, to follow? Like, please, next time you're watching the news, put on the live subtitles. They are ridiculous. It's so confusing. But the more and the more we see that, so the more we see interpreters in theatres, on uh, our TVs, the more we see that, the more usualised it is, and the the more information we might seek out, we might choose to seek out. If we know nothing, but we see an interpreter and we're we're seeing it as a regular thing, there's more chance of us wanting to investigate why that's needed. But there's also this, this, I think, a wave at the moment particularly of hearing people, learning sign language, and then, for example, taking in the theatre world or TV, taking jobs from deaf performers. Now, yes. now that it is... <laughs> you absolutely... I mean, fundamentally, you, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, that. That shouldn't be a thing. But also it takes around, like, you know, seven to ten years to be fluent in sign language. So even for a deaf performer, if they haven't been able to access, you know, BSL until later on in their life, like their teens, because they've grown up in a hearing family or they've not had access to it, then actually it's take, they're using that every single day and they are the ones who are fluent in it. But actually, regardless of that, don't cast a hearing person in a deaf role. Just don't. It's just a fundamental yeah. rule. Just don't do that. And it's so simple. Uh, like Minna mentions, the fact that YouTube now auto-generates subtitles. It's very, very simple. It's a quick edit just to brush up any kind of you know mistakes that might be in there. But these tools are available to us, and we should be using them. We, you know, we should. People have a right to access. Um, you know, public information, creativity. And I think what we need to do is I'd like to see there be more investment, particularly, you know, in the arts industry and th theatre industry that we work in, more investment in building deaf audiences. People always say, oh, we just don't have, you know, there's only, th you know, a handful, a dozen deaf people who come to our performances. We don't have that audience. Yes, because you're only putting three performances on uh, a season and they're all on, sh on performances and shows in the main space. Like you need to, you need to build it. Or also, don't put a BSL interpreter for one night on a Tuesday afternoon. Like, you know, for once on a Tuesday afternoon is not enough. Cause Always that's a Tuesday. Always everyone's, a Tuesday. Everyone's available just for that Tuesday. Yeah, well, great. Did you not know that all deaf people have a day off on a Tuesday? Tuesday Clearly. afternoon. Day Ridiculous. Off. In yeah. fact, let's ban Tuesdays. But no, I, I think that. There needs to be more of a genuine investment. It can't just be an afterthought. Thanks, Minna, for your thought-provoking piece. In the Equality Act, marriage and civil partnership is listed as a protected characteristic, but as part of this, we wanted to explore singledom. So, next up is Caitlin. Who do you think of when you hear the word single? Bridget Jones, the sad single woman who's desperately looking for love. Miss Havisham. Tragic and ruined her entire life frozen when she was jilted on her wedding day. Joey from Friends. The lovable but immature womaniser. I know these are pop culture stereotypes, 
but most representations of single people are either hopelessly sad or socially inept. I'm single, and I don't think I'm either of those things. But I've never really thought of myself as just single. Let me introduce myself. I'm Caitlin. I'm a gay woman in my late 20s. I make theatre, I write, and I love working with people. I've got a lot of houseplants, and I like going out dancing, Dolly Parton, and climbing mountains. Often, when people ask about my relationship status, I get pity and concern and the reassurance that I'll meet the right woman one day or someone will try to set me up with the only other lesbian they know. But enough about my love life. We often talk about being single like it's a failing, a problem that could be easily fixed if only you could grow up, settle down and find true love. But the effects of this go way beyond just pissing me off. As a society, we privilege marriage, and by doing so, we promote traditional values that marginalise whole groups of people. Legally and socially, marriage is a milestone you're expected to achieve. This upholds the quite frankly offensive idea that single people aren't enough by themselves, and the idea that the most important relationships are romantic ones. And marriage has a pretty shady history. For centuries, it was a way of controlling women before we could own property and live independently. The only real means of social mobility was to be traded between families. And this obviously reinforced unfair hierarchies by favouring women who were young, rich, white, able-bodied, straight, cis and conventionally attractive. But it's 2020, I hear you say. Marriage has changed. 42% of marriages end in divorce. Does anyone even get married anymore? Haven't we accepted all kinds of ways of life? Well, no. It's financially and legally much less complicated to be married. Advantages include joint ownership of assets if one of you dies, shared parental responsibility and married tax breaks. In addition, the Equality Act 2010 protects people who are married and civil partnered from discrimination at work and in use of public services. You're not protected if you're engaged, cohabiting, divorced or widowed. By this definition, nearly 50% of people over 16 are single. By this definition, I've been single for my entire life. And there are infinite reasons you might not be married or civil partnered. Not finding the right person yet. Not ever wanting to find the right person and being happy on your own. Finding more than one of the right people. Finding the right person, marrying them and then getting divorced or becoming widowed. Finding the right person and deciding that it's too expensive. Or that slapping on an official title won't really change your relationship. Or that you fundamentally disagree with the idea of marriage because historically it's marginalised huge groups of people. This is especially true for many LGBTQ people as we couldn't get married until very recently. Same-gender marriages began to be allowed in 2014, but we didn't achieve marriage equality across the whole UK until January 2020. And religious organisations can still legally refuse to marry same-gender couples. What about civil partnerships? While they offer a break from the murky history of marriage, they were initially created as a second-class option for queer people before we were allowed marriage equality. Despite this... I think I still want to get married. Sometimes I think of this as a big fuck you to homophobes everywhere. But in reality, it's probably just a desire to conform. 
I hope that I'll find someone I love enough to get the government involved. By making it so much easier to be married or civil partnered than single, we're upholding standards of heteronormativity that enable all other forms of discrimination. It's clear that we need a change in attitude, but does this need to be enshrined in law? The Equality Act might be a start, but it obviously hasn't ended other forms of prejudice, so we need to do more. The fight for radical change isn't in the Houses of Parliament, it's in the ways that we live and the ways that we love. I want single people to be seen as enough. I want different kinds of relationships to be just as valuable as ones that we describe as traditional. I want us to wholly and enthusiastically accept difference of all kinds. I want a more equal world. The fight for radical change isn't in the Houses of Parliament, it's in the ways that we live and the ways that we love. I adore that. I think that is a really beautiful way um, to sum up to sum up what Caitlin's talking about. Um, Caitlin's provocation made me think a lot about growing up. Um, growing up, I was certain that marriage wasn't for me. Honestly, every single wedding I went to, you know, friends, family, I honestly felt like it was a real monumental waste of my time and everyone's time and effort, which I know is quite brutal because I'm sure they all had a lovely day. But I just used to go along and I thought, what is this for? Like the bride's wearing a dress that, you know, basically requires an entourage just to empty a bladder. Everyone is wildly overdressed. I hated getting dressed for a wedding because I didn't like getting dressed up and I didn't like wearing something that was feminine or be seen as acceptable. Even the blooming chairs were dressed up. I cannot understand chair covers. I don't know about you, Sarah, but I've never understood it. Um, and yeah, I, and it, I don't get it. The chair's practical. I, you sit, you put your bum on it, you sit on it. I don't it doesn't need, need to a dress. It doesn't need, and it definitely doesn't need a bow. Who's got time to tie a bow on a chair anyway? And and it felt like, you know, the bride and groom spent barely any time together. Um, and, and the only people that ever had anything to say were men. And I, I, I used to, when I was a child, when my mum would talk to me, say, well, maybe one day you'll want to get married. I'd, I said, so I joked, I was like, look, if, if I was to get married, I would only do it under the circumstances in which I could wear a Man United home kit. My husband, little did I know, um, would wear the Man United away kit and the goalkeeper, uh, the, the vicar would wear the goalkeeper's kit. And I, I used to joke to, to my mum about this all the time. So I'm engaged now. And um, despite the fact that my future wife uh, has refused to wear a United strip. I'm still going to get married. Um, but I think for me, now I realise that I didn't want a wedding or a marriage for that matter because there wasn't a version of it that I could relate to. And I think that the same follows for singledom, for being a single person. If the only version that you ever see is desperate, lonely, pitied and incomplete, then you're not going to want to wear that label the, loudly. The history of marriage is really problematic yeah like walking down the aisle being walked down the aisle by the man so that you don't escape you definitely yeah. go through with it and also so i can hand your new husband some money to say well done thanks for taking her off my hands like yeah. it's all really problematic i think it's a complex thing in itself but i think aside from that being single is a complex thing because i think particularly if you're not male yeah. You are sort of conditioned to feel like you're not enough. Like I really hate, like with a with a really aggressive passion, I hate the phrase, my other half. Like <laughs> that no. 
If that is your other half, you are half a person. Yeah. I'm not half a person. I've never been half a person. Also, when I'm in a relationship, I'm two. I'm like they're them. I'm me. We're individual people, but we we don't need to be together. We want to be together. So they they don't make up any of me being whole. The most important relationship you have is with yourself. And I know that sounds dead woolly and like, oh, but no, it's true. It it's is. True. And and if we're conditioned to feel like we are only half a person and we need an other half to be whole, then that just fuels the idea of, like Caitlin was saying, about failure. You're a failure yeah. because you'll only ever be half a person. Yeah, yeah. one of the worst phrases that I've heard is that uh, somebody's left upon the shelf. A woman is left on the shelf if she's not married. She's not yeah. left on the shelf. She's been living an active life for for many years and... and it's that that idea that uh, I particularly you know in the case of of people identify as women that they are incomplete without a man or a partner. I think if you can feel comfortable in your own company and you feel and you are you feel comfortable in your own skin, that is more important than anything else. Completely, and I think what Caitlin says when she talks about that, you know, we we may be single, but we have all kinds of relationships in our life. Um, one of the, the most uplifting news stories I read recently was about three single mums who moved in and bought a house together, um, and they shared their experience of how brilliant it was to be able to share responsibility and uh, happy times and difficult times together. Now, they're a really well-functioning family from the sounds of things, much more so than the many um, sort of heteronormative families. And, and, and moving forward, I really hope that, you know, we can start to accept different kinds of relationships, you know, as well as, as singledom as a valid life choice that deserves to have the same protections and rights as everybody else. You know, looking at polyamorous relationships, you know, it wasn't that long ago that society looked down upon same-sex relationships and discriminated against interracial relationships. So, you know, I just hope that we can start to make that same progress moving forward. Um, in regards to, you know, the, the lives and the choices of single people and of different kinds of relationships. Thanks, Caitlin. And thank you for our new motto, which is uh, the fight for radical change isn't in the Houses of Parliament. It's in the ways that we live and the ways that we love. Next up is Mandela on the gender binary. I am expected to exist within the constraints of a colonial binary that wasn't created with me in mind. A gender is not a lack in gender. For me, it means no specific ties. English is the closest I can come to understanding the not quite fit that was the relationship between myself and womanhood. English is not my first language, but I don't have the word for my gender in my mother tongue. A gender is a word that describes a feeling I remember having for as long as I've been able to retain my memories. I chose 
my name because it means power and the other one was never really mine. It was borrowed from a potential life. My father told me He gave it to me so I wouldn't be overlooked for opportunity. I wasn't born here, but I was given an English name for a better chance. Yet we talk as if colonialism was just a state of mind that we buried in a mass grave. My gender doesn't only exist because I am able to speak English, but through my colonizer's tongue is the only way I can speak sense of who I am. Not because I haven't tried to find the words. They just don't exist yet. Or they did before. And stop being spoken in a way that doesn't incite hatred. What do you find when you go looking for why there is a lack in a language? I am always searching for the means to explain who I am who I love, how I love. I am constantly hunting for the words to tell myself and those who will be here after. I haven't changed my name in the ways that officially count. In my mother tongue, there are no words for he and she. There are words for man and woman and not me. But the difference is that lack isn't constantly reinforced in the ways we speak. So recently I've had more conversations than ever I think about colonialism and a lot of people in my life have asked what it is which I you know I find shocking that there are still some people who don't know what colonialism is and we are still living absolutely in the effects of it you know in Mandela's piece that through my colonizer's tongue is the only way I can speak a sense of who I am like only being able to describe yourself in a colonizer's language is brutal so brutal in terms of, so you know Mandela uses the pronoun they and in conversations I've had with people, they've said things like, oh, it's too complicated to understand, like, too complicated to remember, you know, but the pronoun they applies to everyone. Even if you use the pronouns he, him, or she, her, you are still able to use the pronoun they. 
it applies to everyone. So it's clearly less about it being, in inverted commas, hard, and much more about the fact that people just don't like change. And I think because, you know, that binary gender stuff is intrinsically part of our society so much. Like, I mean, gender reveal parties... I, I, that, that's a good 20 minutes of me talking about the bonkersness of gender reveal parties. We completely, we really need to acknowledge uh, the influence of colonial history on many things, you know, and that, that we enforced our gender binaries on many people all over the world. Um, you know, gender fluidity has existed for hundreds of years. It's not a recent phenomenon. I was watching a documentary recently, actually, and there was a person called Geronimo from the Navajo community in New Mexico, which is part of the Chiricahua Apache tribe. And um, they identify as a two-spirited individual, um, more specifically, one of the four sacred and ancient gender identities um, from their tribe, which which are masculine-masculine, masculine-feminine, feminine-masculine, and feminine-feminine. Now, because so many of their people and their tribe were killed, that culture, those traditions have have been lost. And that's at the hands of of, of colonizers. And there needs to be acknowledgement of that. When you when you look at that legacy that colonialism has left in so many places, that prejudice and oppression runs through gender and sexuality and the trans community the gender fluid like there is so much that has that that has been left which is we brought we took and has left the damaging legacy it is terrifying i mean I am very fortunate that I was, you know, born in Britain, lived in Britain all my life, and I I live under laws which enable me to be who I am. But to grow up in a place where it is not okay to be you, and you know that actually the only reason why that is the case is because it's the legacy of colonialism is, I mean, that's, that's a stab through the heart. In terms of trans people, they are protected under the protected characteristic, which is called gender reassignment, which I know we talked about before, which I'd, I've never met anyone that feels comfortable with that gender reassignment terminology. But in terms of the non-binary, gender fluid, agender, genderqueer people, it was really unclear whether they were also protected under that characteristic. So very recently, there was a decision made in a court uh, in a in employment tribunal judgment, where it is now official that non-binary, gender fluid, agender, gender queer people are protected under the Equality Act 2010, but they fall under that gender reassignment category. So yeah, incredible news! You're protected. However, yeah, that t- that phrasing, that that language, doesn't feel like it gels at all and I think it's um in terms of when when you talked about the the detail of like all those different terminologies and people say oh there's you know lgbtq plus there's so many uh, acronyms now on it it's ridiculous it's like each of those letters represents somebody's identity you know if you if you put it into simplistic terms that's the same way that we all get really angry when the government refer to anywhere between Watford and Newcastle as the North. 
people get up in arms about yeah. that. Everyone has their own individual identities, and that's that's the same for, for gender, and that needs to be acknowledged. That need we need to be open, and as you say, it's it's very very easy to make those changes. I have a real problem whenever we get contracts through for touring. Eighty percent of those contracts refer to the producer as he. So already, you know. That's 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 there's, there's big problems about that the misogyny that's intrinsic in that. But actually, the most sensible term to use is they and them. In in a contract, of course it is. It's inclusive of everyone. And yes, learning new patterns of speech, learning new ways of referring to people is you know it, it can take people a while. But if you're approaching that with honesty and and integrity to to, to acknowledge somebody for who they truly are it's laziness for me it's laziness and like you say fear of change yeah and it's not okay all you need to do all you need to do if you misgender someone is very very easy and simple you apologize you correct yourself and you don't make it about you you move on misgendering someone is not about you apologizing oh i'm sorry i'm making a big deal of it that makes it worse just apologize correct yourself move on And also, if you hear someone else misgender someone, correct them, correct them and keep correcting them and keep correcting them over and over and over again, because it is not the responsibility of non-binary or agender, genderqueer, genderfluid people to always be correcting people and always be putting their pronouns out there. It is all of our responsibility. So... Thank you, Mandela, not only for giving us time and space to think about that gender binary, but also to think about colonialism too. Next up, we have Reese on race. One of my favourite writers, the late Amiri Baraka, told me that it is the writer's responsibility to tell the truth and make it beautiful. I never got the chance to ask him what to do when the truth is ugly, when it's rancid, when it's ogre-like. Oh, how I would have relished the opportunity to reason with him about how best to expose the truth's true colours when history has done such an immaculate Photoshop job and airbrushed out the unflattering bumps and blemishes, contour to concave. Perhaps in this post-truth world, The act of telling the truth is beautiful in and of itself. Contrary to the popular and all too prevalent narrative, the USA is not alone in having a problem with race. The UK is a good drinking buddy. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that the UK taught it the game and the USA ran with it and upped the ante. The apprentice that became the master. Today I woke up as a black man, and the day before that, and the day before that, and every day going back to the age of nine, I had a fight in school with a boy called Harry, and I won. The latter part is significant, I promise. I was sat in the corridor outside of the headteacher's office, waiting for my parents to arrive. Harry was two chairs away from me. His dad arrived before my parents. A walking, breathing Shrek prototype. The kind of man who probably poured Stella over his cornflakes in the morning. He sits next to Harry and spends maybe 10 seconds looking at his son. He sees that he has a fat lip and is crying. He looks across Harry to where I'm sitting 
and Red rises up his face like he's just hit his thumb with a hammer. Is that him? He asks Harry. Harry looks at the ground. You should have smashed his head in, the fucking black bastard. I remember those words like they were an assembly song. The rest of what he said I can kind of paraphrase. He basically said that he was sickened by the thought that his son could have lost in a fight to a black boy. The contempt in his voice was as thick as his accent. This man in North Manchester was suffering from the hangover of colonial conditioning. The story that this country had told about itself had convinced him that black people were so worthless that the idea of his son being beaten in a fight by a black boy was blasphemous. That this country once travelled the globe with an armada of ships to forcibly export its culture tells a particular story. That story should be entitled Our Culture is Better Than Yours or Britain Knows Best. This man's diatribe was over by the time my parents arrived, but that night I had a very uncomfortable conversation with my mum. The truth is, Britain has a problem with race. I'd like to say that this experience was my last overtly racist experience, or that I'm alone. That would be a lie. It echoes across the corridors of our society, and its echo is amplified by social media and the right-wing press. Race belongs to a wider sphere of otherness. Humans have always seen difference, but in a historical context, it was most commonly a way that we would identify kinship or tribal affiliations and not necessarily a way to place people in hierarchies. Otherness in the context of race is so closely bound to colonialism that we cannot hope to create a post-racial society until we actively confront another uncomfortable truth. Multiculturalism and post-racialism are not one and the same. One of the UK's most beautiful attributes is that we are home to so many cultures, but this reality adds a smokescreen that enables anti-anti-racism to thrive. I'm talking about the All Lives Matter and I Don't See Colour Brigade. If we are to create a truly post-racial UK, and I'm questioning whether that's even possible as I write this, we collectively have to dismantle the story that the UK has been telling about itself for as long as it has had a voice. We need to revolutionise the narrative, tell the ugly truth, and in its telling, allow ourselves to see and bask in the beauty that emanates from the simple act of telling the truth. We do have a problem with race. The UK is not innocent. Britain absolutely has a problem with race. And I think when Reese talks about the uncomfortable truth, it, it feels like that is the centre of, of everything, is that actually what we, we don't want to talk about things that make us uncomfortable. And that is absolutely what we need to do to move forward. We we can't move forward in in any understanding or uh, into a place where there is not racism if we are not actively confronting the uncomfortable truth uh, and being actively anti-racist 
in every way we can. And that isn't a tick box. That isn't a way of saying, actually, yeah, I'm anti-racist, tick. That is a lifelong commitment that we make to, to do that. And I think a lot of what's been happening with, you know, Black Lives Matter and people posting black uh, blackout things on social media is that actually it's all just tokenistic. Like there is work to be done and those conversations aren't always online. They're offline. They're in your street. They're with your neighbours. They're with your family. They're with the people who, who don't know. Like I have tried to spend as much of the pandemic as I can offline. So if I see, if I go online and I see something like All Lives Matter, I will pick up the phone and I will talk to that person. I will start that conversation with them. We've got a Black Lives Matter poster on the front of our house and I have actively had three people who have come like window cleaners and and the plumber that we've needed during the pandemic to come to come and fix stuff have actively asked me so you know the black lives matter thing and open the conversation because the poster's there and they feel like they can ask the questions now i don't know all the answers but i absolutely think that it's everyone's job to be fighting racism and it's everyone's job to be anti-racist in every way that they can yeah and i think some of the most important conversations that we have about race are in classrooms um our equalities workshop which we've delivered in schools across greater manchester now for four years um is, is a place where we talk about race. We've delivered 240 Equalities workshops to over 7,500 students, and not a single session has passed without a black student sharing with us either a personal experience of witnessing or being the target of racism. These students are year eight and nine, so they're age 12 and 13, and these incidents are not isolated. They've taken place in every district of Greater Manchester. So when Reese says this is not America's problem, it's not. It's happening on our doorstep and in our communities. And we have to make a commitment to change that. We absolutely have to make a commitment to change everyone. How how are we in 2020? How are we in 2020? And we're we're still having people being asked the question, where are you from or where are you really from? It's it's vile, it's disgusting. I was really genuinely quite sickened to hear that um, a recent performance by dance troupe Diversity on Britain's Got Talent, which um, this programme was, they represented the events of 2020, including the pandemic and global anti-racism protests, specifically focusing on the murder of George Floyd. Now, Ofcom received the biggest number of the, the the biggest number of complaints in over ten years for a television show. They received twenty four thousand five hundred complaints about the program. It's twenty four thousand five hundred people in the UK complained about that show. Now Ofcom has since said that um, they're not going to pursue the case. Um, they said they concluded that the, the program did not raise issues which warranted investigation under the broadcasting code. But I find it astounding. This, for me, this was an artistic response to the murder of a black man by a white police officer. For me, there is hope in the numbers of uh, people taking to the streets, particularly the next generation of young people who are willing to hold power to account over this. Um, one of the things for me, I'm a huge football fan. Um, last season, after the instance uh, and the, the riots, the footballers um, took the knee before every game, before kickoff, 
and they kept that till the end of the season. I was certain that the Premier League would not continue that this season, that they would say, we have to seem to be doing something, but then start a new season, new slate. It's usually what happens. They've, they've got, you know, they've not got a very good history uh, around tackling racism seriously. However, they've made a statement that this season, any players that want to take the knee will be uh, permitted to do so and respected. So there may be one player that decides to take the knee of the 22 on the pitch, but everybody else has to wait until they've taken the knee and, and step back up before they can kick off the game. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And every single game that I've watched so far, I've watched a lot, um, all the players have still knelt. Thank you, Reese, for your honesty and for outlining how much more there still is to do. We understand that tick boxes are there to face the problems we have with exclusion as an effort to include us in spaces where we've not been welcomed before. And whilst boxes can be useful to help us articulate our identity, constructed through stereotypes and expectations, sometimes they are less useful than you might think. Let me tell you who I am with my words, not to cross in a box. For many of us, we don't understand how we benefit from someone else's oppression. White people benefit from racism, straight people benefit from homophobia, men benefit from sexism, cisgender people benefit from transphobia. The list goes on. No, we, we cannot continue to feel like at least we're not them because someone else is lower down the prejudice pecking order. Someone I was having a conversation with the other day said, you keep using the word othered about yourself and I've definitely started to use it more. It feels like it fits. We are othered by society. We've been reading history with enormous gaps and deliberate omissions for too long. Where are we in those stories? And if we are there, why are they being told by you? Protest is the last measure to be heard. You've ignored everything else and taken to the streets is all we have left. We can all do better, but the first step is committing to doing it. The first step is a practical one, actual things you can do to instigate change. Often we feel like we're just a small cog in a very large machine, but change starts with one cog and it builds to thousands. Micro actions can build into big waves. We want to say a huge thank you to our artists and to you for listening to our stories behind the stats. So. What are you going to do?